leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. reports on the coronavirus outbreak put the number of infections at nearly 75,000 and deaths at more than 2,100. Against the backdrop of the outbreak, we spoke to Evan Lowe, chairman of the Antimicrobial Working Group and CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals, about the global changes that are fueling the threat of infectious disease outbreaks, the state of the antimicrobial arsenal, and what needs to be done to spur the development of new agents to combat the rise of deadly bugs. Evan, thanks for joining us. Well, uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Very excited to be here with you. We're going to talk about the antimicrobial working group, the state of the antimicrobial arsenal, and what we should make of the recent Wuhan coronavirus outbreak. Perhaps we can start there. I I don't want to get into the specifics of the virus, but how does a virus like this emerge? Well, you know, it's one of those things where uh, situations where I think at the end of the day, nature always humbles us, right, in terms of our state of understanding of the science. And similar to SARS and other uh, potential uh, outbreaks such as Ebola as well, is that I think we are still for some of these uh, viruses uh, just now uh, trying to understand them. And uh, once we understand them, then there's an opportunity to try to create a preventative vaccine uh, and I think the challenge here is not only creating a preventive vaccine, which could take years, uh, but also to develop adjuvant uh, or adjunctive uh, therapeutics. Uh, you may have seen the announcement today where uh, BARDA expanded their relationship with Regeneron to specifically look at potential antibodies uh, to uh, treat the coronavirus. And In addition to that, I think, uh, Daniel, as you know, uh, as you are an aficionado of this antibiotic space and uh, infectious disease space, that you understand that, you know, going back to the 1918 pandemic, uh, where there were uh, 50 million deaths worldwide, uh, we know that half of those deaths occurred uh, primarily due to secondary bacterial infections, primarily due to pneumonia. And uh, in the absence of antibiotics, you saw the, the, uh, the mortality rate there as well. So... Uh, an important part of the treatment of pandemics is not just the prevention as it relates to um, uh, antivirals, but it also involves antibacterials uh, in order to actually uh, deal with the uh, secondary infections and more, most commonly with 
uh, viral infections like coronavirus or influenza, typically it's uh, antibiotics effective uh, against uh, uh, pneumonia type of uh, infections. There are a number of factors that are conspiring to increase the movement of infectious diseases from animals to man and also making it easier to spread to populations throughout the globe with speed. What are some of those factors that are shaping the modern landscape of infectious disease? Well, I think that I think in, when you look broadly across infectious disease, I think that you know, in animal husbandry, as you look at the use of antibiotics uh, for uh, the raising of cattle, chicken, uh, swine, etc., uh, you know, I think those uh, settings are ones in which uh, people worry about those antibiotics having similar mechanisms of action to antibiotics we use today for humans to have cross-resistance uh, develop. And uh, I think when you look at the SARS outbreak, uh, where there was a resident host in an animal called civet, and uh, in other settings uh, uh, where you have uh, these viruses that reside in, in uh, animal hosts that uh, when they are ingested by humans, sometimes they actually decide to jump from animals to humans. And in this particular case, uh, surprising to many folks is the fact that uh, it's gone human to human. And uh, so far to date, the uh, infection, uh, the, the pace of infection does, has not seemed to extinguish uh, yet. How well equipped are we to respond to such outbreaks, and is enough being done to monitor or contain them? Well, I think that, you know, China is being very aggressive currently, and we hope their efforts will be, um, will be beneficial. Uh, I think because of the potential understanding today of their long of the long incubation period with uh, this coronavirus, uh, you know, the horse may have gotten out of the barn here. As you see, many, many cases across the globe uh, that, that are happening already, and we're learning that it actually seems to be able to pass uh, from human to human uh, quite, uh, quite easily. And so when you think about preparedness, which is what you're getting at with regards to pandemics or pandemic uh, viral infections, I think it's one of those situations where you hope that you have what you need uh, stored somewhere, and the United States takes that approach, specifically with uh, our strategic national stockpile uh, of uh, antibiotics and potentially vaccines uh, uh, as well. I think some of them have been aimed more towards uh, prevention from a bioterrorism perspective, but I know that the CDC has a very consistent and very large commitment to containment with regards to uh, uh, the treatment of uh, potential pandemic flu with their own strategic national stockpile as well. I think that the cautionary note here is that what you may have read about uh, with regards to some companies that have uh, devoted some of their exper experimental programs forward for coronavirus, it's going to take you know, upwards of a year to, to identify a potential vaccine, and then you have to be able to manufacture and distribute it. So it's not something as a prophylaxis that will be readily available, and we're still missing the therapeutic to be there. So if you don't have it on the shelf, it can take years and years and years to develop a therapeutic. And so I think from a from a pandemic preparedness perspective, I do think that this is a uh, very much of a wake-up call for uh, all countries, not just in the United States. And what role does diagnosis play in all this? How important is it to have proper diagnosis of these conditions? I think you've got you've got you've got the therapeutic. I mean, you've got the you know the prevention uh, aspect with regards to vaccines, right? 
uh, very much so you need the diagnostics and the ability to use what's called um, uh, RT-PCR, uh, polymerase chain reaction, to identify the coronavirus. Very, very helpful. Uh, the challenge, though, with the coronavirus from a diagnostic standpoint is I don't think that, that uh, epidemiologists or ID physicians quite know yet uh, where the shedding event actually occurs for coronavirus, whether it happens early in the infection or whether it happens late in the infection. And I think the shedding timing is really important to have effective quarantine as part of the uh, approach. And then finally, you also need, as I said earlier, adjunctive antibiotics to be able to deal with not primarily the viral-induced pneumonitis or an inflammation of the lung, but what happens when you have that viral pneumonitis or inflammation of the lung is that you basically have compromised the normal protective layers in the lungs to keep bacteria from infecting the primary lung tissue. And uh, that's where you do need adjunctive antibiotics on the shelf in your strategic national stockpile in order to be able in, in order to be able to deploy that uh, on a timely basis in order to save lives. And you use the term shedding. Does this refer to the point at which the, the virus expands? That's right. Multiplies, and then it's uh, very much within your droplets and your ability to actually communicate that through, uh, you know, air, uh, airborne droplets. That's right. There's no specific antiviral treatment available for the Wuhan coronavirus. You, you talked about some timelines, but in terms of developing a therapeutic or a vaccine, are there things that need to be done to accelerate a response? I think, unfortunately, until you know the DNA sequence sometimes of these viruses, it's very hard to know what to go after from a vaccine perspective, right? And so the challenge is going after something you don't actually know. And when this virus pops up, unless you have very similar motifs, in terms of DNA sequencing that you could actually go after. Very hard to do prophylactic vaccines against things that you don't actually know what's out there. And then once you know what's out there, I think smart scientists that are much smarter than me will, I know that there, some of them are working very hard uh, uh, to try to identify exactly what the uh, DNA sequencing motif is that they have to go after to induce an immune response and to get that vaccine uh, tested uh, in humans to look for the immune response to their adjuvant that they would use in their vaccine and to see whether the protection is ultimately uh, durable or not. And once they figure that out, then they have to figure out what a large-scale manufacturing approach uh, could be uh, going forward. And then there has to be a distribution chain uh, superimposed or done in parallel uh, to that as well. So you can imagine that this is a very complex uh, uh, process, and it just really takes time, and unfortunately for some of the testing, to watch for antibody responses as well or to develop these vaccines, you can't speed up, the, the, you can't speed up time. Perhaps we can take a step back. For listeners not familiar with the Antimicrobials Working Group, what is it and what does it do? Thank you for asking about the Antimicrobials Working Group, or we refer to ourselves in the, in the three-letter uh, acronym of AWG. We are a coalition of uh, small biotech companies that are focused on uh, developing antibiotics or uh, antifungals. And uh, this coalition has been around, uh, was, was uh, initially founded by uh, Jeff Stein, who's the, currently the uh, CEO of an antifungal company called uh, Sidera, C I 
D-A-R-A. And uh, we spend our time uh, trying to do education uh, throughout the uh, uh, legislative as well as in the regulatory bodies that include HHS and CMS to educate them on uh, what potentially uh, could be helpful to further buttress the uh, longevity of the uh, antibiotic uh, marketplace today. And uh, unfortunately, you know, our work each and every year that passes becomes more and more urgent because uh, there are, uh, of these companies, uh, we've had uh, several of them uh, declare bankruptcy in the last uh, 6 to 12 months, and uh, that, you know, that deters uh, future investment from investors, and it also uh, makes it uh, uh, disappointing that uh, the technologies that these companies are working on uh, may not ever see the light of day in terms of getting to patients who desperately need them to save their lives. I think it must now be about 20 years that I've been reading reports warning about the rise of resistant bugs and the lack of investment in new therapies to address them. It, it seems as though despite the attention this has had, the problem has not gone away. Where would you say we are with regards to the threat we face from resistant bugs and, and how big a problem is that today? Well, simply put, bugs always win. And that has been true ever since penicillin was introduced into the marketplace in the early 1940s and the tetracyclines were induced uh, were introduced also in the mid-1940s as well. And this antimicrobial resistance or AMR uh, challenge is something that is very much uh, uh, part of um, uh, part of the landscape today, and because of the absence of uh, new technologies coming on board, um, you know, doctors and hospitals have been uh, prioritizing uh, what they have, which is, which are the older antibiotics, uh, most of them being generic, who uh, are being afflicted each and every day by increasing uh, resistance profiles, leading to uh, poor and poor outcomes uh, many times, including including death. And I think that, you know, when you look at uh, the antibiotic marketplace today, uh, because of the absence of, of uh, successful uh, launches and successful stories, I think investors have largely walked away from the marketplace. And today it's fragile and it's uh, very much uh, failing, uh, unfortunately. What's driving the rise of superbugs? Well, I think when you think about it, you know, what used to happen was that there were many different uh, novel antibiotics introduced, and they were uh, introduced through the large pharma companies. And they had a lot of research and development investment, and they had uh, the ability to actually uh, uh, do the right type of antimicrobial surveillance work. And when resistance started showing up, uh, doctors uh, were able to, because of what's something called selection pressure, change the antibiotic to another class of antibiotic at a low rate when, when there was a low rate of resistance, the bugs never really got ahead of the, uh, of the uh, resistance curve in terms of, you know, overcoming the technologies. The unfortunate part now is that because there's been such a dearth of new mechanisms introduced and uh, new uh, chemical entities introduced, uh, that these bugs have had kind of unfettered growth. And when doctors continue to use the uh, antibiotics that already have known and established mechanisms of resistance, the bugs become stronger and stronger against those antibiotics, and those antibiotics become weaker uh, each and every day they get used. And so you need the introduction of novel uh, new antibiotics so that these bacteria don't know how to fight them, at least initially. Over time, as I said, bugs always win. 
But initially what you do is that you move them away from those other antibiotics and you uh, treat them and eradicate them. And uh, uh, it's, an, it's an effective way to ultimately monitor uh, and uh, manage resistance. I do think that as another component of that, I mean, a, a simple uh, approach in terms of thinking about it is the right antibiotic for the right patient at the right time. You know, if you've identified, you've mentioned diagnostics, find the right bug, you have the right antibiotic, you know you can eradicate that uh, bug by killing it, and the patient actually ultimately gets cured. And that, that's the ultimate goal that all, all physicians like myself care about. There was an exodus of large pharmaceutical companies out of antibiotic development several years ago. AWG notes that less than 5% of pharmaceutical investment goes towards antimicrobial development. Why aren't more companies and larger companies working in this area? Well, there's a, you know, I think that the exodus is not just several years ago. It was actually 10 to 15 years ago that most of the large pharma companies actually have exited out of this therapeutic area. Largely, they've, they've decided and pivoted towards uh, oncology and rare disease uh, assets where the reimbursement model is uh, much more robust for uh, adopting technologies uh, that are approved on day one. In the antibiotic world, uh, the way the economic model works is that these antibiotics are, because of trying to re reduce the rate of resistance, even though they may have novel mechanisms, that they are put on the shelf and, uh, you know, in, in the situation of break glass when you ultimately need it, when patients have actually failed, you know, the older generation of uh, antibiotics that doctors are preferentially using today. challenge with that model is that, you know, small companies like like uh, Paratech or others that are in the AWG, uh, we need to solve for time, right, in order for there to be uh, enough education, enough utilization where doctors get comfortable with the new antibiotic, that there's a reasonable utilization for the right patient at the right time, uh, that we can actually cover our costs and ultimately uh, become profitable so that we can actually have dollars that we can reinvest back into further research. And unfortunately, uh, because of the investment environment, because there hasn't been a really successful recent launch in the last five to six years, and that Big Pharma is really not in play today as a uh, near-term uh, strategic partner, uh, investors have really walked away and said, come back when you've actually had a successful product in terms of uh, peak year sales. And so... Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, we're in a situation here where the investment dollars, as AWG has said, over 90% of the investment dollars that are going into new antibiotic research is from the companies that are in the antimicrobials working group. And um, the challenge there, though, is that we don't, we don't, most of our companies just have a single product. We don't have a portfolio of multiple different products that are also commercially successful that could actually allow the antibiotic to have time to be successful. We just have one product and we need the time to make that product successful. And without that, as, you, as you've seen with Acaeogen and uh, most recently Melinta, uh, they've uh, filed for bankruptcy protection uh, because they just don't have the ability to manage uh, not only the large investment uh, in order to try to be successful, but their product revenues are not robust enough to sustain them uh, on their own. There have been efforts to incentivize the development of new antimicrobials. Uh, I think here of the GAIN Act, 
there has been some evidence that this helps stimulate the development of new antibiotics, but how effective has it been? The GAIN Act was a bipartisan bill that was passed by Congress back in 2012, June. Massively important uh, for uh, providing an expedited regulatory path as well as enhanced uh, regulatory exclusivity. And uh, that GAIN Act underpinned why Paratech is here today, as I'm sure many other of the other antibiotic companies uh, today that are still uh, in business. Um, I think the challenge with the GAIN Act is that it allowed us to uh, raise capital, move our products through the, develop, the late stage development phase, which is the most expensive phase, these large final pivotal trials, uh, but it didn't provide a change in the regulatory uh, or payment uh, environment that allowed these antibiotics uh, during the launch phase to ultimately be successful. And so I think that there is opportunity here, and we as, as, as the Antimicrobials Working Group uh, have continued to do our best to educate legislators on Capitol Hill as well as the leaders of CMS and HHS about the importance of considering what we believe on the near term is uh, something that could be very important to all of us, which is an upgrade or a modernization of the DRG system, the diagnostic-related group uh, payment systems for patients admitted with uh, life-threatening infections. And the modernization that could happen is that those payments in the payment collective that include that includes antibiotics as well as hoteling fees and lab fees and x-ray fees have not really been modernized in the last 30 to 40 years. And what we believe would be extremely helpful would be to create a separate payment system for antibiotics outside of the DRG where hospitals today are basically choosing antibiotics that are best for their hospital finance needs, uh, which generally tend to be the cheapest older gen generics and uh, for them to actually then take costs out of it and to be able to pick the right antibiotic for the right patient at the right time. And, uh, we think that that would be a very important, I think, uh, uh, boost to the overall uh, collective environment for antibiotics who have made it to that phase of post-approval into the early commercialization period. What more needs to be done? Are there issues that are top of mind for AWG in terms of advocacy work? I think advocacy work is massively important. I think one of the challenges uh, that you may have caught wind of, uh, Daniel, is that antimicrobials anti or antibiotics you know, that compose antibiotics or antifungals, we don't have a natural advocacy group. It's not as if we have, you know, Friends of Cancer Research or, you know, Breast Cancer Society or Cystic Fibrosis Foundation to name a few, uh, because we don't have the annuity of chronic uh, illness. It's uh, generally these infections are relatively short, short-lived. You either get better or you have complications and you actually may ultimately die uh, with these life-threatening infections. And so uh, people forget, and they're not part of any long-term advocacy group. So I do think more of these kind of conversations that I'm having with you and uh, others to get into the lay press uh, I think are important to continue uh, to talk about the importance of paying attention to this space so that antibiotic innovation doesn't uh, go the way of, uh, of, uh, of the dinosaurs. And so I think that 
I think advocacy is really, really important. And, uh, you know, besides, you know, the legislative work, uh, there's a bill called the uh, Disarm Act uh, that's on Capitol Hill today. There are basically mirror uh, image bills, one sitting in the House and one sitting in the Senate. Um, they both have bipartisan support uh, to uh, move forward. And uh, we hope that this year that uh, Congress will see the importance of this. Uh, I know that at least one of the current Democratic candidates has noted the importance of uh, the antibiotic uh, space uh, as it relates to what she would uh, want to support uh, if she were to be elected. And so I think that our message is getting out there. We just need to continue to have advocates in Congress that will, from a legislative perspective, push this Disarm Act through, which is focused on creating the separate payment system uh, for antibiotics outside of the DRG system. On top of that, though, we've been uh, partnering very closely, uh, not only by ourselves, but also with the Infectious Disease Society of America, Pew, uh, as well as Bio, as well as Merck, to actually be uh, speaking on an educational basis with the leaders of CMS uh, to think about uh, whether there could be a DRG carve-out regulatory pathway under their authority that they could consider for what's called the IPPS draft rule that should be promulgated uh, sometime in April. That's the inpatient prospective payment system. And uh, we have seen uh, the continued advocacy by Administrator Verma in terms of the importance of considering uh, these type of regulatory changes, and uh, we hope that her group will uh, uh, be uh, able to uh, put something forward that uh, can really change that uh, the dynamics in the marketplace. It has to happen now. It has to happen almost yesterday, uh, to help some of the companies uh, that are in this particular sector um, uh, to, to continue to uh, survive. The other uh, the other thing that, that needs to happen, I think that private-public partnerships uh, with the government uh, are going to be important to think about. Yeah, it's referred to as what are called pull incentives to help through the early years of a commercial launch. Uh, you may or may not have noticed that uh, Paratech um, was awarded a uh, contract with uh, BARDA through Project BioShield, which was a... Um, a, uh, a, a uh, yeah, it was... Uh, BioShield was put in place by George W. Bush, and it was specifically dollars that were allocated and protected specifically to develop agents uh, to protect Americans against uh, bioterrorism uh, pathogens. And uh, our lead product has uh, in vivo and in vitro efficacy against uh, pulmonary anthrax, and we've been awarded a contract to develop our product against pulmonary anthrax. And this uh, private-public partnership has also provided dollars that will uh, add um, USIRA, which is our lead product, to their strategic national stockpile uh, over the next five years, uh, as well as to help us bring uh, manufacturing onshore to the United States so that we can actually manufacture it completely in, in the U.S. And uh, so BARDA then does not have to cross borders in order to uh, be able to bring this or have this product available in the case of uh, of a bioterrorism attack. And this is very similar to what we talked about earlier in terms of pandemic uh, preparedness. Evan Lowe, chairman of the Antimicrobial Working Group and CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals. Evan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. 
To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.